ago, Mingu led us in a sermon that talked about the word glorify. Two weeks ago, Jay uh, presented a lesson on the term edify, and last week, Ben presented a lesson on the term testify. It has been our objective with these lessons, as I find my click, it's been our objective with these lessons to help us grasp ultimately what our mission is and to put it in terminology that is so simple that it's easy for us to understand it, to repeat it, to remember it. And tonight we're going to close out this series with one final term, with one final word that helps to summarize what it is that, the, what, that constitutes the church's mission. The church's mission is to glorify, the church's mission is to edify, the church's mission is to testify, and finally the church's mission is to unify. This evening, I'll be focusing on this fourth component of the mission that we have chosen to emphasize in this series, this term dealing with unity. Now, we don't necessarily think of unity as, uh, as part of our mission most of the time. We, we, we typically think of unity in, the ter- in terms of uh, maybe a responsibility, but not a mission, not an objective. It's just a component of church life. But ultimately, when we look at unity in the context of Scripture, it is presented missionally. In fact, it's presented as a component of every term we've already looked at. If you think back to uh, that, that idea of glorifying God, reference was made to Romans chapter 15 in the passage that calls on us to, to, to have such harmony with each other that we glorify God together. Glorifying God in the context of worship, which was one aspect of Mingu's lesson, the, the, the worship aspect of glorifying God necessitates unity. And you think about edifying, edifying one another, whether we're talking about encouraging one another or stirring one another up to love and good works and all those other one another passages which are going to get expounded upon in the coming weeks as we start a new Sunday morning series. But think about all those one another passages. They're all communal in nature. They all require unity and camaraderie and working together in order to fulfill them. And even when it comes to the term testify, to that mission of evangelism, to that mission of service, it has a component that deals with unity. You see, unity is our mission because it provides proof. I want you to look at John chapter 17 with me, verses 20 and 21. John chapter, excuse me, John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. John chapter 17 is a prayer presented by Jesus. It's, it's him praying in the garden moments before he's going to be arrested. And in verse 20 and 21, that prayer turns to a theme of unity. This is what Jesus says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In this passage, Jesus prayed for two primary things. First, he prayed for his disciples, those that were currently his followers and those that would one day be his followers. He prayed for his disciples to all be one. That's a prayer for unity. A prayer for unity between brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus prayed here for us to be united to each other. But you'll also notice that he prayed for his disciples to be in us. The us here is a reference to Jesus the Son and God the Father who are united with each other as two parts of the Godhead. That's a prayer for unity between believers and God. So here in this prayer, this, this one of the final times that Jesus' apostles are going to hear him speak, Jesus prays for his disciples to be united to each other and then for his disciples to be united to him and the Father. It's a prayer for unity. Now why did he pray for these two things? According to the last statement in verse 21, Jesus prayed for unity on these two fronts so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, unity between disciples and unity with God, they serve as evidence for the deity of Christ. Love may be the trait that will declare to the world that we're Christ's disciples. At least that's what he inferred in John chapter 13 and verse 35. But here as he prayed in the garden, he identified unity as the trait that would declare to the world that he is the Christ. That's why unity is so important. Our unity with each other and our unity with God serve as evidence that Jesus is who He claimed to be. It's testimonial in nature. It's missional in nature. And I want you to think for just a moment. How much unity does the world get to observe from the church? I bet if we did a, a poll among this present audience asking how many of you have either experienced or know of a church split, it would be a very high percentage. Far too often, the church fails on this mission of unity. And then we wonder why, why the world doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And ultimately, we have to look in the mirror at ourselves. Look in the mirror at the church, because far too often, the church has allowed matters that aren't really of any importance 
to rip it apart and harm the very thing that Jesus declared would show the world that he is the Christ. Unity is that important. Unity matters because it's the evidence of Jesus' deity. And so it is part of our mission. It is one of our objectives as followers of God to pursue and nurture unity within the brotherhood. Now that doesn't mean you do it at any expense. We'll get to that in a moment. But we need to recognize just how important unity is as a part of our mission. And it's not just important because it provides proof. It is also important because it is absolutely powerful. Turn over to the book of Genesis chapter 11 with me. Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses record the story of of the Tower of Babel. You're probably familiar with the Tower of Babel, even though it's not a story we appeal to that often. But I I want you to notice something significant that is observed in the context of this story. We're told in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1 that at that time, the time of the construction of the Tower of Babel, The whole earth had one language and the same words. In other words, the narrator is telling us that after the flood, the people of earth were united by a shared universal language. The text goes on to say in verses 2 through 4 that as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So not only were the people united because they spoke the same language, but they were also united because they shared the same purpose. Collectively, they had decided to settle in the same location and construct a massive city with a massive tower. It's at this point that God enters the story. According to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5, God came down to see the city. And upon seeing it, he made an important observation that often gets overlooked because we are so focused on what he does that we fail to pay attention to what he says. Look at verse 6 with me of Genesis chapter 11. God said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. For them. When God looked upon the people of the earth at this time, He observed that they were united. He said that they are one. And He acknowledged that their unity was powerful. 
that nothing would be impossible for them. You know, we're used to Scripture telling us that the impossible is limited to the arena of the divine. That only God can conquer those things that are impossible. Like giving a child to a hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman. Like impregnating a virgin. Like bringing salvation to man. Journey through Scripture, and you'll see that whenever we come across the word impossible, 99% of the time it's set in the context of language about God, that nothing is impossible with God. And it so fascinates me that right here in Genesis chapter 11, God is speaking. And God looks at a united group and says nothing will be impossible for them. I think that aspect of this story gets overlooked because we're so focused on the error of their unification. And we fail to recognize that there's power in their unification. And the reason God intervened at Babel, I don't think, is because He disliked their unity. I think he intervened because their unity was misplaced. Their unity had a self-absorbed agenda. They were united for the purpose of making a name for themselves, not a name for God. And I think that's the reason God intervened. And did you notice how God intervened? By creating disunity. He came down. He confused their language. And that caused them to disperse from one another. Their objective was wrong. To make a name for themselves. But that fact doesn't take away from the observation of God that unity had made them unstoppable. Unity was so powerful at the Tower of Babel that God recognized it and did something, did something to dismantle it when He realized it was leading the people in the wrong direction. What we should take away from the Tower of Babel story is the fact that there's nothing that can't be accomplished for the kingdom of God when we are, in fact, united. United with the right purpose. United with the right agenda. United with the right objective, the right mission. That's why unity is so important. Unity empowers the church. Unity serves as evidence for Christ's deity, but it also serves as strength for God's people. And we need to recognize, we need to recognize 
that our God, the one for whom there is nothing impossible, looked at a people who were united and said because of that unity, nothing's impossible for them. You know, the only other time in Scripture that man is associated with being able to do the impossible is when Jesus spoke about faith and how faith could move mountains. Now, we, we appreciate that terminology. We can understand the, the, the importance and the power of faith. But all too often, we've never looked at unity the same way. But unity was so powerful at Babel that God said nothing would be impossible for those people. Now we have to acknowledge that at Babel their objective was wrong. And that's why God intervened. And so that leads us tonight to consider this. We need to consider what unity necessitates. What is it that must exist within the context of unity for it to have the right objective, for it to have the right agenda, for it to be in line with God's will so that He doesn't need to intervene. And I want to focus tonight on three components of unity that must be present for it to be the right kind of unity. I think the first component, we'll just call it commonality. Commonality means that there's something at the core of those involved that they share in common. Something that is the same among everybody who's participating. What I find very interesting throughout the New Testament is that when Paul referenced unity, he often referred to it as possessing the same mind or having one mind or being like-minded. In other words, there's a, a, a component to unity that is a shared belief system. I want you to look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 4. Much is said about unity in Ephesians chapter 4. In particular, you'll come to verses 4 through 6 of that chapter, where Paul said there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Initially, when we, when we see the word one in this passage, it can be easy to consider the concept of unity because when one is used as an adjective, it often refers to unity. Such was the case back in John chapter 17 and verse 21 where Jesus prayed that His followers may all be one. But the number one can also be used in reference to singularity, and I think that's the important thing in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 through 6. What happens here is that Paul identifies seven categories that are one in the sense of being unique, original, and singular. 
In other words, he denounces the possibility of pluralism on these seven fronts. And in so doing, he indicates that our, our, our uh, platform of belief, if you will, consists of a common shared belief along these seven lines. And when you consider the implications of these seven statements, you realize that Paul is saying three big things. He's saying that there is only one God. Paul references one Spirit, one Lord, which is his normal terminology for Jesus, and one God. In so doing, he makes a Trinitarian reference that leads to the acknowledgement that we must all believe in one deity. It's Paul's way of confessing a monotheistic faith that's consistent with the proclamation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Our common ground, if you will, the thing that must be the commonality between us starts with a belief that there is only one God. But when you look at the statements Paul makes here, you realize that he's also indicating that there's only one church. Paul's reference to one body, that's a term commonly used by him as a reference to the church. So he references one body, then he references one faith. That refers to the basic doctrines of the church. And using those two terms, they collectively indicate that Paul is saying what else must be in common between us is the belief that there is only one church. There's only one God. There's only one church. And the third thing that must be in common between us is the belief that there's only one means of salvation. Paul's reference to one baptism, which is the means through which salvation is received, and his reference to one hope, which is a reference to the believer's future reward, they both indicate that there's only one way to be saved. And so as we run through these seven statements that appear in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we see Paul declaring that here is the foundation of what's common between those who are like-minded. The belief that there is only one God, that there is only one church, and that there is only one means of salvation. If we don't have those things in common, then we can't be united. We live in a world that doesn't accept that. We operate in a world that doesn't believe in absolutes. We live in a world that wants everything to be relative to themselves. And the problem is when you start accepting relativism, you're allowing truth to be subjective and situational, defined by the individual. And it's impossible to be like-minded 
when everyone's truth can be different. Without absolute truth, a truth that is objective and unchanging, there is no standard for values. There is no standard for doctrine. There is no standard for faith. And so what Paul reveals to us in Ephesians 4 is that our unity requires commonality on these grounds. A shared belief system that he outlines. Unity necessitates that commonality. But let me tell you the second thing that unity is going to necessitate. If we want the powerful unity that God talked about at the Tower of Babel without the necessity of interference because we've got the wrong agenda, the second thing unity must require is functionality. Unity requires functionality. Scripture repeatedly teaches that each and every one of us has a role to play in the work of the kingdom. Paul indicated in Romans chapter 12, verses 4-6, through 6, that the church is one body comprised of many members who do not all have the same function. Therefore, as members of one another, we are to use the gifts that we have been given for the benefit of one another. Paul indicates that we all have a part to play in the body. Then in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, Paul indicated that the whole body of Christ is joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. His point is that in order for the church to be united and to grow, every member has to do his or her part, fulfill his or her role, contribute his or her gift. Finally, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 4 where Peter said, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The implication of Peter's words there in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 is that our contribution to the kingdom benefits its members and brings glory to God. Clearly such passages indicate that we have a responsibility to contribute our talents, our skills, our gifts, our knowledge, our resources, all to the work of the kingdom. The problem is that far too many withhold those things. And what we fail to realize is that withholding our gifts, withholding our skills, withholding our knowledge, withholding our talents, withholding our resources, all of that impairs unity. Because as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, unity is based on every joint every part functioning with the whole. The one metaphor Paul most frequently used for the church was the human body. He'll argue in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that no person would look at their body and have their hand say to their foot, I don't need you. Or their eyes say to their ear, I don't need you. 
Because the body is a completely unified entity. And that's what we're supposed to be. But unity can't exist where functionality is withheld. If we refuse, if we refuse to contribute to the function of the body, if we are not working with the body, if we are not allowing ourselves to be used in the body, then we're not contributing to unity. In fact, we are to some degree hindering it. Because unity necessitates functionality. And one last thing. Unity also necessitates humility. I've saved this one for last because it might just be the most important. What I find so very interesting is that the first century church struggled with a variety of spiritual issues. When we read through the the book of Acts or through the epistles, we encounter or we see the church in the first century encounter false teaching, persecution, spiritual compromise, greed, and immorality. But I think the biggest problem, or at least the most universal problem it faced, was the problem of disunity. In more than one epistle, Paul had to confront the churches to whom he wrote on matters pertaining to unity. And as I reviewed some of those situations, I noticed that every time he addressed the subject of unity, he also addressed the subject of humility. So if you go to Romans chapter 12. You'll see him do this. Now you need to know that in Rome, the church there was struggling with unity between ethnic groups, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so in Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, Paul gives this instruction to the church in Rome. He says, live in harmony with one another. There's no doubt that that's a reference to unity. Live in harmony with one another. The very next sentence, it appears in the very same verse, the very next sentence that Paul utters is, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul started with an instruction about unity and immediately followed it up with an instruction about humility because they go hand in hand. Let me show you where he does this again. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. One of the more popular passages that deals with unity. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There was division in the Corinthian church over which church leader each member was affiliated, affiliated with. 
And this caused Paul to criticize the Christians in Corinth for being infants in Christ and behaving in a human rather than spiritual way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. He would go on in that same chapter to say, Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? One's a waterer. One's a planter. But in the grand scheme of things, they don't matter because it's God who gives the increase. And later in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul appealed for them to be united in Christ and instructed them to let no one deceive himself. This is verse 18 through 21 of 1 Corinthians 3. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So let no one boast in men. Once again, Paul starts the letter of 1 Corinthians calling on that church to be unified. And when he returns to that theme in chapter 3, it's necessary for him to address humility. Because unity and humility go hand in hand. One last example comes from the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul instructed two members of the church in Philippi Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. We're not specifically told what the issue was that they disagreed about. But it was a significant enough issue that Paul didn't mind naming names. And Paul didn't mind, in the very next verse, asking the church to help these ladies. If you look in Philippians It's not hard to spot the moment where he felt the need to address humility. It preceded this statement to Yodi and Syntyche. But if you go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Once again, as Paul addresses an issue of unity in Philippi, he, follow, he, he, he simultaneously addresses the subject of humility. And the point is that every time Paul called a church to be united, he likewise called that church to be humble. Because you can't have unity without humility. And I think... That's become the greatest hindrance to unity in the church. That as individuals, we lack the desire to be humble. All too often, we care more about what we want, about what we desire, about what we think is best for us, And we refuse to humble ourselves and consider what's in the best interest of someone else. Imagine for a moment if our Lord thought that way. If Jesus himself 
chose what was in his best interest over what was in our best interest. If Jesus himself refused to be humble, because if he refused to humble himself, then we could not be united with God. We would still be God's enemy because of our sin. If we want to experience the power of unity, if we want to provide to the world the proof of Christ's deity through our unity, we've got to have greater humility. And you might just be surprised when you start realizing all the ways that applies to your life and to your relationships in the body of Christ. This evening, we conclude our Simplify series by looking at the fourth simplistic category of the church's mission. That's not to say that the church's mission is simple. Instead, it's to say that it's understandable. We can know what our responsibility here is. We know that we are here to glorify God. We know that we are here to edify one another. We know that we are here to testify to Christ. And we know that we are here to unify the body of believers for the glory of God. As we draw this series to a close, maybe you look at yourself and and you realize there's an aspect of the mission that you're not fulfilling. I want to challenge you tonight that if you're not fulfilling one of those aspects, to consider what must change in order for you to do that moving forward. Tonight I want to challenge you to consider whether or not you're a part of the church, of the Lord's body, whether or not you've been truly tasked with that mission. Tonight I want you to consider whether or not you're fulfilling the will of the Lord in your life today. Because we have this opportunity as we gather here. We have the opportunity right now to glorify God, not only in the way we praise Him, but in the decisions we make from this point forward. We have an opportunity right now to edify one another, to stir up one another to love and good works, to encourage one another. We have the opportunity right now to testify to Christ, to leave this place, to share the good news with others, to serve others, and to prove that Christ is in fact the Son of the living God by our unity with one another. If you're not contributing to those objectives, Now's the time to start. And if you're not a part of the Lord's body, now's the time to join 
by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you have any need to respond to the invitation this evening, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.
Thank you, Kyle, for that lesson. We look forward to going back uh, next week to a period of study on the roundtable format on the life of Paul. Uh, we're excited for that. We'd love for you to come and join, be part of that next week. If you haven't had the opportunity uh, to partake of the Lord's Supper today, uh, that's been prepared in the back. Uh, it'll be distributed to you in the back. Someone will direct you as we sing this next song, number 764, first and last. 764. <clears throat> when we meet in sweet communion, card if you're a member or a visitor with us go to the watch live page and do that where we have a record of your attendance our closing song is going to be number 842 as we think about unity and unifying with one another 842 <clears throat> we'll sing it through twice a common love for each other
Dear Heavenly Father, it has been good to be here today and it's been a blessing from you. We uh, appreciate so much our help that allows us to be here. We're thankful for the lessons we've heard. We pray that you will give us opportunities in this new week to go out and to glorify you and to bring honor to your name. We pray that we might have opportunity to tell others the good news of, of your son. Lord, we're uh, mindful of those that are traveling. We pray that you will bless them with safety. We're mindful of those that are sick. We pray that you bless them with healing. And we're mindful of our country that's uh, going through uh, difficult times now and this world that's going through difficult times. And we pray that you bless us with peace. Be with us as we part and bring us uh, safety throughout this week. And we look forward to the next time we can gather together on Wednesday and then again uh, next Lord's Day. Be with us as we part. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.